Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number one. Yes, number one. Of Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, a podcast where we dive deep into the world of James Bond 007. We'll dive deeper than a tussle in Skyfall Lake, deeper than some hideously yellow atomic bomb sleds. And finally, we might even come up for some breath once we've sunk to the furthest depths and met Sheriff J.W. Pepper. Am I serious? I sure am, boy. So if you're ready for the journey, get your scuba suit on. Bring the emergency breathing apparatus and come with us on what we hope will be a rather exciting journey. So in plain English, that simply means that uh, each episode of the podcast will guide you through a different James Bond film. We'll examine the merits, the shortcomings. We'll talk more generally about our impressions of Bond. We'll do our impressions of Bond, some better than others, so do listen out for those. And we'll have some recurring segments to keep you entertained. And of course, we're open to your suggestions as well, so do get in touch with the show. Roger Moore's Cubby Hole, all one word, no apostrophe, at gmail.com if there's anything in particular you'd like us to cover in future episodes. So uh, as well as recurring segments, you'll be pleased to know that we also have a recurring cast. I'm joined by two co-hosts, equal partners in this mission. So uh, let's meet them. Firstly, we have Lord of the Bond. It's Adam. How are you today, Adam? And uh, what are your expectations for the Cubby Hole? Thanks, Martin. Not sure if I quite live up to the Bill Lord of the Bond, but I'll try my best. Uh, yeah, my name's Adam. I've been a Bond fan pretty much uh, most of my life, uh, almost as long as I've been friends with these two. I'll be giving you some impressions of the series, both very good and mostly very bad and incredibly inaccurate. Uh, and I'm a much wider film buff as well, so hopefully I'll be contextualising them a little bit within the history of the cinema and the context of the times in which each film was made as well as having a good laugh with these two that's good i think we've got a it's nice to have a bit of professionalism in the podcast and we'll get your take on the maybe the actual shooting of the films and secondly and finally we have the show's very own low-grade iron pyrite it's phil how are you phil yeah, so thanks, Martin. I'm a huge Bond fan myself. From my side of things, I'm much more of a, sort of a car geek, so you'll hear a lot of facts about cars that they've used over the years, including a bit more about the stats and the sort of the vital statistics for, for each model, and hopefully be able to provide some more insights about what the cars are and, uh, and what, they, what they actually did in the films too. Okay, very good. So Adam is our film expert and you are our geeky car expert, Phil. Yeah, so sort of cars and gadgets and, and a little bit of trivia thrown in as well. A mix of different things, really. Phil, when you say you're giving us the vital statistics on each model, I do hope you're only talking about the cars there. Yep, yep. Well, that could be a good point where you could play in the... Grow up, 007. Very nice. We look forward to that. So first segment, we're going to discuss our very first impressions of James Bond. So uh, maybe we'll start with you, Adam. What were your first memories? My very first memory of watching a Bond film, and it's quite vivid even now, was it was a Saturday night when I was probably around six or seven, so way too young really to have been watching it. Uh, but ITV was showing A View to a Kill, so that was my entry to the Bond franchise. I remember some time after, maybe a week or two, You Only Live Twice was on, 
So I've got a little bit of Roger Moore, a little bit of Sean Connery. So it was a little bit scattergun. And then I remember a couple of years later, and I'd picked up a few others in the meantime, ITV did a whole season of showing all of them leading up to, I think, what was then the TV premiere of Tomorrow Never Dies. But um, A View to a Kill is where I started. So uh, very much room for improvement from there. But it didn't put me off. So, you know, let's, let's give A View to a Credit, A View to a Kill rather, credit for that much. Yeah, I think that's a, a view to a credit, yeah. It just does deserve some credit. Maybe not so much, though. Uh, yeah, I think uh, when I really got into Bond was when I used to go to your house, Adam, and we played on the N64. Was it the GoldenEye game, or was, was it a different one? It was. I didn't have GoldenEye on Nintendo 64, but I did have The World Is Not Enough, uh, which was sort of similar, but much less heralded. There was one gun in it, which was just a missile launcher which was a little bit ridiculous, because as soon as you picked that thing up, you were invincible. Yeah, do I remember, because you were the only one who had the game, so you'd, I think you'd perfected it. So no one, we went round to your house and we could never beat you. Yeah, that does sound like something I'd do. I'm a very competitive person and a very bad loser. Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, that was my first impression. Although it seems a bit late. I think we were quite old when The World Is Not Enough came out, so I'm not sure why that's my first impression. We wouldn't have been old, old. I mean, The World Is Not Enough was 1999, so we'd have turned 10. That was my first cinema bond, and obviously my dad snuck me in because I was too young. It was a 12 certificate. So the game must have come on around the same time. So no, we wouldn't have been old, old I don't think. Around 10, just pre-teen. Uh, okay. Because uh, we didn't know Phil at that time, so uh, Phil... Um, so in terms of my first impression of Bond, the very first film I ever saw, um, again, similar to Adam, was when ITV was showing um, the films back-to-back on a Saturday or a Sunday. So I started with quite a good one. I started with Goldfinger as my very first, and literally that was seeing the Aston Martin DB5 in its full, you know, so we'll get to that when we, we speak about Goldfinger in a couple of weeks. But just seeing all the gadgets on it and just seeing, you know, the, the level of detail within the film, I was just hooked from the very start. Um, I think from that point onwards, I just I wanted to see, you know, that was so fascinated by the whole franchise that from then on it just piqued my enthusiasm so I just wanted to watch every single one um, and my first cinema experience again was The World Is Not Enough so I, at the same time I was too young to really see it but my uh, my sisters helped to smuggle me in to see it at uh, the tender age of 10 so my uh, my sisters were the ones to thank for, for allowing me to see it at the, uh, the cinema. Okay good so you were I mean you were quite big for a 10 year old this is an audio podcast of course people can't see you but uh... Yes, I'm, I'm six foot four, so I am, I am quite tall, to be honest. So, uh, so yes, it probably did help at the time um, to being able to sort of bluff my way in. So, but no, I, I enjoyed it greatly, and it's, um, I do enjoy Bond a great deal. Okay, good. So were you, was the car an in for you, Phil? Were you interested in the car first and then Bond, or was it the whole package? I think, to be honest, it was the whole package, really, because it was just the whole experience of, you know, this this exciting, you know, exotic locations. And, you know, it's the fact that it was a secret agent and it was it was somebody that you wanted to be. It was the car did help, of course, because by that time I was really interested in cars and it was kind of, you know, it was really cool. This car that, that had an ejector seat and had, you know, bulletproof screens and oil that shot out of the back and machine guns that fired from the indicator lights. And there was so much about it that was just so cool. Okay, very good. So we, we look forward to your car segments, Phil. Shall we move on now to our second part, which is uh, we're going to analyse an actual film, believe it or not, James Bond film podcast, looking at uh, a film. You must be joking. So Adam, I believe you are going to introduce Dr. No. 
I am going to introduce Dr. No. So, the first James Bond film based on the sixth book, produced by Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli, from whom we uh, take our name from his nickname, Cubby, directed by Terence Young and starring Sean Connery. Uh, made for $1 million, which was a low budget back then, and grossed $6 million, so a sizable commercial hit, if not a critical hit. Though it's now uh, 41st on the BFI's official list of the 100 greatest British films ever made. And it was released in October 1962, and this is the same month that the Beatles' first album, Please Please Me, comes out. It's around the same time that month as the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it's a couple of months ahead of Lawrence of Arabia becoming the standout British film of that decade and probably the two decades previously as well. So we are right at the middle of Britain in the swinging 60s and its status on the world stage as the coolest country on earth at that point. So I'm now going to run us through Dr. No. I'm going to be doing this, apologies in advance, in the style of Alan Partridge. Uh, we're big fans of his rundown of the introduction only to The Spy Who Loved Me in uh, Series 2 of I'm Alan Partridge. So we're going to use that as a uh, reference point to walk you through Dr. No without infringing copyright in any way, shape or form. Uh, this is hopefully going to be in 0070 seconds, but might take a little longer. So you're looking down the barrel of a gun at a man who definitely isn't Sean Connery. Bang! Blood dribbles down. Cue the greatest film music of all time. Da 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 Which then segues into a weird Calypso version of Three Blind Mice. Three blind mice, there they go. Three blind mice in the rope. Then those three blind Jamaicans accidentally wander into the whitest club in Kingston. But they're not really blind. They shoot this guy Strangways and then they shoot his secretary and steal files on Crab Key and... Doctor No. Cut to London and we're in a swanky members club where a man is playing some inexplicably good Shemin de Furhans against a very attractive lady. I admire your courage, Miss uh, Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond, James Bond. But before he bankrupts her, he has to leave for his office where everyone's still at work and fully dressed despite it being 3am. M says he's got to go to Jamaica and gives him a new Walther PPK gun and warns him, you have a license to kill, not get killed. So Bond nips home to pack and nearly shoots Sylvia who snuck in to play 4am golf in one of his best dress shirts. When did you say you had to leave? Immediately. Almost immediately. So Bond goes to Jamaica and pulls some nifty judo on a dodgy cabbie who offs himself rather than talks. To hell with you! And at the whitest club in Kingston, he gets very suspicious of Strangway's mate Professor Dent for letching over the missing presumed dead secretary. That new woman of Strangway's was very nice, very nice. And then he meets the CIA's finest Felix Leiter, who for some reason can't take his sunglasses off all through the film, and his much put upon fishing mate Quarrel, and they fill him in on what's been going on, and Quarrel's all like, I don't want to be going back to Crab Key Cabin, they got a dragon. But next day, this dodgy professor's gangster tripping because Bond's onto him, so he goes and gets a tarantula to kill Bond in his sleep. But fortunately, it's clearly walking on a glass plate, so Bond just sweats it off, then batters it to death. Next day, Bond decides that he's had enough of all this and takes out all of Dr. No's agents one by one. He sends the three not-so-blind mice's car off a cliff. I think they're on their way to a funeral. Arrests his embassy spy after two rounds of afternoon delight. Book a superintendent, will you? And uh, be careful of her nail varnish. And then shoots Professor Dent in cold blood mind. That's a Smith & Wesson professor, and you've had your six. 
Then Bond and Quarrel head over to Crab Key Island to see Dr. No. But instead they meet Honey Rider, literally the hottest woman imaginable, emerging from the sea. And they have a sing-off where she's like, Underneath the mango tree, my honey, And Connery ruins it because he's just like, Underneath the mango tree, my me. What are you doing? Looking for shells? No, I'm just looking. And that's as good as it gets, because then it all turns into an episode of Channel 5's Caribbean Holidays from Hell. They get shot at with machine guns, chased by dogs into a swamp, eaten alive by mosquitoes, Quarrel gets toasted by the dragon, and when they finally arrive at the Hotel Doctor No, they get showered for radiation sickness and pass out after a dodgy coffee. When they wake up, they finally meet Doctor No in his bizarre aquarium. One million dollars, Mr. Bond. You are wondering how much it costs. And Dr. No tells him his entire life story, who he's working for, and shows off his champagne knowledge. That's a Dom Perignon 55. It'd be a pity to waste it. I prefer the 53 myself. And even though Bond's been ripping Dr. No's disabled metal hands all through dinner, this is the bit that properly makes Dr. No flip. You're just a stupid policeman. So Bond gets beaten up, imprisoned, electrocuted, and half-drowned before he escapes and sneaks into the set that clearly costs most of the film's budget. Uh, he fiddles with some random knobs and he sends Dr. No's Island into meltdown, so at least Spectre can claim some money back on the insurance. Then Dr. No tries to fight him on a metal gantry, but Bond's like, ha-ha, you've got stupid metal hands, sucker. So Dr. No bites the dust, and then Bond rescues Honey, punches two black guys off a boat, and escapes before it all blows up and he's just got enough energy left for some boat sex with Honey before Felix Leiter, who's done nothing for the entire film, turns up to cock-block Bond and roll his eyes at him getting some more Punani. The end. That was... That was longer than 70 seconds, but my goodness, I'm glad it was. Thank you, Alan, or Adam, I should say. Alan has left the building now. Okay, very good. So uh, I think our, our next segment's not really a segment. We were just going to generally talk about the film, uh, Dr. No, and what we thought about it. So we've had a, an excellent summary there for those of you who haven't seen it, although if you're listening, uh, I'm sure you have if you're seeking out James Bond podcasts. So uh, maybe we'll move across to uh, Phil. What do we think? What were your general impressions of Dr. No? Uh, how good do you think it was? What were the, uh, what were the good and bad parts? I mean, I really enjoyed it as a film. I mean, it's um, obviously as the introduction to the series. I think it did really well to sort of um, engage new audiences with the franchise. And I think it is a really good, it's quite an easy introduction into the whole franchise itself. So if, you, if you've never watched a Bond film before, it's quite an easy plot to follow. It's not quite in-depth, you know, it's, it's quite a straightforward introduction. Um, and I really enjoy Doctor Now. I think it is one of the best of the, of the bunch. I certainly think it's one of Connery's best if you and certainly he had a lot of good films. Obviously, there are a few comical moments in the film, some that I was going to come to a little bit later in the trivia section. But I mean, there's some elements where you see sort of stunt men that probably aren't supposed to be there, um, some elements where it's um, slightly comical dubbing. So, for example, when the uh, the boat's trying to to find James Bond, Quarrel, and Honey Rider, and they open the machine gun fire, the guard on the in control of the boat basically forgets to turn his loud hailer off so although he's giving his commands to the loud hailer he then puts it down and he's still shouting somehow at the same volume um, but overall it is a, br a really brilliant film and I think it was you know it was a really great way to start the whole franchise as a whole 
Yeah, I think I had that in my notes as well when I was watching. That was probably one of my favorite parts is the, uh, the loudspeaker. And also his, his weirdly, it was very American, the accent. I mean, I was going to say that later, but Dr. No seems to be quite an equal opportunities employer. There are a lot of nationalities working in the, on the island. And that was, it, the voice just didn't match with the situation, I didn't think. No, I think you're right. It was, uh, it was a very odd uh, piece of dubbing, I think. And I think there were certain elements throughout the film where there were maybe um, some possible errors with the sound editing, let's say. But you, you can sort of forgive it for those minor, uh, minor indiscretions. Yeah, I think broadly I agree with everything you said there, Phil. It's a, good, it's a simple film, but it's done right. There is a real emphasis on style in this one, and also in From Russia With Love, which I guess the proto-Bond films before Goldfinger really sets the style of the films in earnest and what they were going to be in terms of spectacle and in terms of glamour and in terms of, I guess, that slightly bonkers, you know, edge that, you know, the gadget cars and everything else gives it. But all the elements of that are really here. You know, Honey Rider still potentially, well, still very much the most iconic of, um, of the Bond women just because of that scene emerging from the sea. Um, and I think a lot of that is there in the novels. I mean, let's not forget, I'll talk a little bit about this when, as we talk about the books, but when Fleming was writing them from the 50s onwards, it's very much after World War II, but rationing is still going on for the first few the publication of the first few novels in the UK. And so that emphasis on going to very exotic locations, which are, you know, halfway across the world. Um, there's a lot of eating at very swanky restaurants and eating very rich gourmet food in the books as well. And the films really capture that um, in, in their style. Uh, and I think a lot of that comes from them having assembled this team of key collaborators who go on to do a fair few of the early films. So they span this one and they go over the transition into what we now think of as a Bond film. And a lot of that comes from the director, Terence Young, who we know for this film uh, was a real mentor to Sean Connery in the role, very importantly. Um, he took him to his hairdresser and to his tailor and took him around casinos and fine dining restaurants because Sean Connery was, was still kind of a rough around the edges, you know, guy from Scotland. He wasn't the old Etonian Oxford educated Bond that Fleming wrote about. So to get him comfortable in the role, uh, Terence Young very much took him under his wing. And I think the other thing Young gives it is a real sense of visual style. He's talked uh, about being very influenced by Alfred Hitchcock uh, and North by Northwest. And it's got the same look and the same colors um, in the grading of the film, the grays of the suits and um, that sort of retro modern feel we'd now call it uh, to the sets and everything. And so he's very key in getting the style and the look and the feeling of those films there before the other elements of the Bond cocktail are introduced later in the series. Yeah, I think that's a good point about the uh, being, was it one of the first colour films? Because I think at, the, at this time, Roger Moore is still acting in The Saint, which is still in black and white. I don't know about it being one of the first colour films full stop, but it's still very much an era when you can shoot either in black and white or in colour. So black and white films are still probably the norm. And I guess colour was mostly used for big technical productions, like, you know, the biblical epics in Hollywood, Ben Hurs and so on. So yeah, it's very much a time when you still can film in colour or in black and white. So clearly they've made the decision to spend the money on colour film stock. And they've made that decision, as Cubby always said, to put every single dollar of those million dollars on screen. At around the same time, from a little earlier, the Hammer films uh, were of course being made and they're low budget movies. 
But again, they're shooting in colour and it gives the red of the blood a real richness and it gives those sort of dark blue and purple and black gothic tones a real striking look when you see it on the screen. And definitely Bond's going for the same thing. Yeah, I think talking of the blood, it's interesting that it's absent from quite a lot of the murders. What did we, what did you make of that, Phil? Yeah, it's, it's quite, I wonder if they were, they were trying to aim it for the sort of the PG audience. They didn't want to make it too sort of violent for, for the audience they're aiming it for. But yeah, it's, I think it kind of, it's, it varies from film to film really, but I think the violence was sort of, it was consistent with the actual storyline. I think, you know, the, the, it is quite a good action sequence as well. The fact that Sean Connery is there doing a lot of judo moves and they are in, in hand-to-hand combat, which is what you'd expect in that sort of environment as well. You know, it's, there's only really very occasional moments where he's actually shooting people, which is, which when you look at the, the films that follow it, it's a lot, it becomes a lot more reliant on, you know, firepower and people being able to use weapons and it, it, you know, there's a lot more variety as you get further along. Whereas this goes a bit more back to basics in terms of what they actually use. It's, and again, with, from Russia with Love as well, it's quite a basic setup in terms of how they portray the violence through those two films as well. I think that's a really important point, though, because in a sense, this is actually the birth of the action movie. And I think that's partly why Bond remains fascinating and, and has enjoyed as an icon, because very much those early Bond films are the first proper action films in the way that we now think of them, i.e. they're set in a reality without necessarily realism, but which looks like the modern world and the world around us. There is a lone single hero who is going into these situations to be the one person the world is reliant on to defeat this larger-than-life villain. And like you say, the inclusion of fistfights, of gunfights, of car chases, it's one of the first films, really, that brings all of those things together into this new, separate genre of the action movie. Previously, action was confined to things like the Western or the war movie, perhaps, or the swashbuckler, to go back even further. And part of what felicitates that, in a sense, is that James Bond isn't really a spy. This is my sort of first controversial thing I'm going to say. But I don't think the Bond films are spy films, because I don't think Bond's a spy. I think he's more a secret agent, or as Dalton later describes himself in Licence to Kill, I'm a licensed troubleshooter and a problem eliminator. He's not a spy in any major sense. I mean, Roger Moore makes the joke about, he'd be, he would really be a rubbish spy because he goes into every bar in the world and everybody knows his name and what he drinks. Uh, so, so yeah, and that separates it from what the spy film then was, which was, again, the Hitchcock model of a wrong man, a normal person who gets caught up in the world of espionage uh, and therefore acts as the audience's conduit into this very dark, shadowy, clandestine world. Here, it is within the spy world, but it is an action hero within the spy world. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's a good point about the action star. And I, it kind of leads me on to a point that I wanted to mention about the pacing of the film. I agree with you that the action is important for this film, but I personally, I thought it still was a spy movie. I mean, I guess you're, you're saying it was a secret agent movie rather than spy. Uh, but I had a, there was a nice pacing in the sense that we followed Bond. It didn't rush things, I didn't think. We, we saw different elements of the mission him tracking down someone and I felt I didn't like some of the other future films it didn't rush those beginnings. I think that's a really good point yeah and I think um, yeah I think you're absolutely right about that and I I do love that sense that he's still an investigator in this he's not just moving from one set piece to another he's actually thinking about it and he's engaged with the plot and what's going on and he's 
solving the mystery of, of who Dr. No is and what's going on at Crab Key as he goes. And those scenes of old school spycraft, I think, are just absolutely mesmerizing. There's something about Connery in this role, like after all the mentoring, he's so relaxed. He looks so at home in those suits. The costume design is incredible. And he's, people have talked before about him getting the role because he left the audition and they watched him leaving and he walked like a panther and they were like, oh, that's the guy. And he really does have that just absolutely hypnotic sense of grace and purpose and power and leonine threat in the way he walks. And just in scenes when he's walking around hotel rooms, it's electrifying, just bits of him plucking a hair out and putting it onto a wardrobe so that he can come back and see that somebody's been in it or dusting um, little bits of powder on his, on his briefcase to know that somebody's been in and inspected it. Just watching him move and do those little spy things, it's just absolutely brilliant. And no dialogue is used, you just watch him doing it. And it's really sophisticated filmmaking because, you know, he drinks his way through the film and he sleeps his way through the rest of it and fights his way through what's left. But at the same time, he is still investigating and he is still using those spy crap tricks to make sure that he's gonna be okay and that he stays one step ahead of the competition. And like I say, just Connery and the way that he moves and how relaxed he is and how just utterly in the role he is, is really mesmerizing. Yeah, that reminds me of Phil walks like a pen, well, maybe not a panther. <laughs> Tabby cat, perhaps. Uh, what, what? Well, I'm, I'm glad you noticed, mate. To be honest, I'm glad you noticed. I was going to say about the uh, when he when Connery like plucks his hair out. Surely is that a stunt hair? He can't afford to lose any at that point, can he? Uh, I think much later on, yeah, he'd have been very uh, reluctant to have plucked any of his own hairs out. I would imagine it's a stunt hair from the point of view that it's very hard to just make any hair show up on camera. So yeah, that must have been some kind of problem. Yeah, I bet he wishes he'd kept that uh, much later on. Certainly by the time we get the diamonds off or whatever, he'd have uh, probably been a bit. Maybe that was it. Maybe all the hotels he stayed in as Bond, he's had to pluck a hair every single night. That's where it all went. Yeah, I was going to say, in well, terms of realism, surely that's not a real spy trick. That's The, the hair could fall under any manner of circumstance. Uh, entirely possible. Entirely possible. It is interesting how this film sets everything up, going back to what Phil said about you know, setting up the franchise, in the sense that this isn't Casino Royale. Bond is not a new, just-branded 00 agent. That scene with M is really crucial at the start, in that we learn a few things, i.e. that he's been a 00 for 10 years, presumably. He talks about, you know, when he's, the Beretta gun is taken off and he's given the Walter, you know, we're told that he's been carrying the gun for 10 years which presumably means he's been a double O for 10 years, whereas M is new, presumably, because he talks about how the casualty rate has gone down since he took the office. And so it's a very interesting cagey relationship between the two of them, which uh, between Connery, of course, and Bernard Lee as M, the great original M, uh, which they build as the series goes on. And it's great to see the origins of it really being sown just in the screenplay there uh, by Richard Maybaum and Joanna Harwood, I think. Yeah, that's quite interesting, Adam, because I was about to say... I noticed with Bernard Lee and his actual meeting with Bond, as an actor, he actually looked quite nervous in those opening scenes. If you look at his sort of hands, they're trembling slightly. So, whereas Sean Connery looks quite natural in the role, where you'd expect sort of Connery to be a bit more nervous and a bit more unsure as a, a new actor, it's it's kind of it's a bit of a change of roles because Bernard Lee almost looks like he's a bit nervous. 
being given the, the responsibility of being M. So it's quite an interesting transition between the two, but it's it's a really good relationship that the, you can see growing throughout the films as well. That's a really interesting thing to pick up on because, um, as mentioned in the introduction, this is 3am, so they genuinely are in the middle of a crisis. And so to have picked that up in Bernard Lee's performance is, is phenomenal. Maybe he's a much subtler, more method actor than I'd, than I'd previously given credit for. So well done, Bernard Lee. Is there any reason why it's dubbed he doesn't say mi6 or he says mi6 but it's dubbed mi7 is there some kind of legal issue there they're not sure whether the real mi6 will be happy that they're doing a bond film i was gonna mention about this in my trivia actually because i was looking a bit of research online and apparently it was originally mi6 that they put on the original script so there is a take where they said mi6 but in the very first film, they were worried about sort of offending the real MI6, so they changed it to MI7 at the last minute. Yeah, maybe the uh, British government was a lot more um, lawsuit-happy back in uh, back in this time than it is now. Or I guess perhaps a lot touchier at a time when we didn't have the internet, of course, and people didn't really know so much about how these, how these things worked. Um, yeah, but they were much touchy about it. I want to very quickly actually go back to something you mentioned earlier, Phil, in terms of the action scenes, and in terms of a lot of these being proto-action sequences, I guess, uh, specifically with that scene where he shoots Professor Dent, because this was a very controversial scene at the time, and I know that they had to do a lot of very careful cutting around it, because he does shoot Dent in cold blood. Like, he knows that Dent's run out of bullets from using the silencer to shoot the pillow as he walks into the room. And the fact that Connery just very casually lifts the gun up, you have your six, and shoots him twice, that was very, very tough and a very difficult scene at the time. And I think it still has that charge now. It still feels like a really savage moment. And do we think this is, this is kind of the birth of Bond as a very dangerous character? We know he's very cool. We know he's very clever. We know he's very stylish. Is this the first moment in the series where we truly and properly see how dangerous and deadly this man is? And is that part of the thrill of it? I think so, yeah. I was actually going to mention that is probably my favourite scene from the whole film because of just how brutal it is. Because it's almost like he's an assassin in that sense because it's, you know, he because the, the person that's tried to kill him is basically out of bullets, he could theoretically let him go or, you know, get him for information. But it's, it is just that ruthlessness that he isn't going to let him do anything more after this point. And, it's, and it is just the way, it's the way that he carries out the execution as well. It's the fact that, you know, it's once in the front and then just to finish the job off, you're just once in the back. It is quite an astonishing way that he does it. And it kind of, you don't really see that up until probably the Timothy Dalton era when it's that ruthlessness again. I mean, obviously there are a lot of hard kills in sort of Connery films and then Roger Moore films, but not... To that extent, I wouldn't really say. I'd, I'd probably say that you don't really see that again until the Dalton film. Yeah, I'd say it's kind of, it's about Bond's character development, isn't it? This first film about seeing who he really is. And I think uh, in all of the, I, can't, I don't know, maybe a total of three people that he kills in the film. It's all about pragmatism, isn't it? It's part of the job. Uh, and interesting that it's, uh, he's more efficient than the three by mice. I don't know how many times they shoot Strangways, but my God, he's, he's dead, guys. Come on. I guess when you're in a car park in uh, the whitest club in Kingston, Jamaica, you, you've got to be really quick and you've got to be very sure with that. The uh, Honey Rider character, maybe we should uh, touch on her. What was I going to I forgot what I was going to say. You were talking about touching on Honey Rider. I was about to say that's a little bit problematic, Martin. 
I have a controversial statement about Honey Rider, though. She's not my favourite Bond girl, and I actually think she's a bit overrated as a Bond girl. Do you have any thoughts? I'm keen to hear your further thoughts on that. Well, I'll be honest. I mean, I was going to wait until we got to the film, but my favourite Bond girl of all time is Diana Rigg in On A Majesty's Secret Service. And I totally understand why people, you know, enjoyed Honey Rider as a character and why it was so, so groundbreaking. The fact, you know, you see her emerge from the sea and it's this really attractive woman and, you know, she's really independent. And it's the fact that it's, it's quite a sort of a mouth drop moment. I hate to say that in that phrase, but it is quite an astonishing moment. But I don't know, I just, I just think it's, she doesn't really add anything. I don't think it's sort of, she just kind of gets in the way. We know that she is quite feisty and that she is, you know, able to fend for herself, but it's it just seems a bit like an afterthought almost. She arrives so late in the film, you can't really build that character hugely. I mean, I know she does leave an effect, and it's she is there for the climax of the film, but it's it just seems like it's a bit of a dud, really. It doesn't really seem to give much of a character. I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I, it's just me, but yeah, I've never really been a massive fan of Honey Rider. I do, I do kind of know what you're on about. It does the same trick in this film with Doctor No. His identity is, is obscured from us and kept a mystery uh, for a very long period of time. And they do this with various villains at certain points. So Blofeld and You Only Live Twice. You know, we only see him, of course, that's been building for a few films, but we only see him here and we don't see him in full profile until quite late on. And they do the same trick again when it comes to Skyfall with Javier Bardem. And in other films, the, the villain appears almost immediately in some cases, before even Bond uh, appears. And we'll talk about that next week, of course. Uh, but I do know what you mean, Phil. It's interesting looking, comparing Ursula Andress as Sonny Rod, and, of course, the actress who dubs her. And let's not forget that a little bit of a disconnect with the character may come from the fact that Ursula Andress has been dubbed in the role. But, yeah, in the novel, it really makes a lot of the fact that she's quite edgy and she's very independent and she's incredibly resourceful. And she's a woman to whom awful things have happened. And the film does keep that one scene in when they're chatting at the waterfall about the landlord who, who sexually assaulted her and what she then did to him in terms of using her superior knowledge of the natural world to slip a poisonous spider into his net and kill him. So she's quite a dangerous character as well. And that's why in the novel, she's, she's quite an interesting match for Bond. And I do agree with you. Uh, the film, if they'd have used her a little more, uh, and if they'd have gotten to the island perhaps a little sooner, they could have fleshed that out a little bit more. But I think it goes back to, in terms of what mine said about the pacing of the film, you, you would lose all that lovely investigative stuff in Kingston. Uh, and you kind of, in a film like this, it works because it, it's so efficient and it's so streamlined and it ratchets along so quickly. Um, but I think what Honey Rider does have for it is, of course, that opening. It's Channel 4 voted it the sexiest moment of all time. Uh, some time ago and and it still really is an incredibly evocative piece of filmmaking just the framing of the shot with like sky and sea and beach and just this slow emergence the fact that she removes the I think it's just the swimming goggles from her head so that her hair can suddenly reveal itself in this frenzy it's remarkably choreographed that scene but yeah she is a little short change in terms of her character um, which is, you know, it, it's a common theme, sadly, in this series that the female characters aren't always as strong as they could or should be. Yeah, I think I'd, uh, I'd go with what both of you said there. I think, well, of course, for our listeners, it's the first time they've heard Phil, uh, but he's been consistent. He's consistently said Diana Rigg over and over again for all of the, the years that we've known. That's all I'm here for, just to wait until we get to Honor Majesty's and I'll just trail off. Good to know, Phil. Um, I think the uh, I was interested by Honey Rider's dialogue. 
I mean, as you say, Adam, it's, there is a disconnect because of the dubbing. Uh, but I wasn't sure you couldn't really do that now. I'm not sure whether the dialogue would translate to modern day. If you remember when she says that she didn't go to school, uh, she just reads encyclopedias. I mean, you couldn't have that in a modern film. Someone wouldn't just say, I didn't go to school. I go on Google. Sorry, is Honey Rider Indian now mine? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it wouldn't translate now at all. Um, even 20 years ago, it could have been like, I, I learned everything from uh, Encyclopedia Britannica or uh, being part of CD-ROM series. But yeah, no, it doesn't work quite as well now. We should, we should talk a little about the main man as well, shouldn't we? About Dr. No himself, who, who as I've sort of alluded to, he's, he's kept in shadow and in mystery uh, throughout the film. He's only introduced towards the very end, at which point for me, he just nails every iconic Bond villain note that there is to nail. He does his whole backstory. He explains who he's working for. He gets very arrogant and doesn't actually kill Bond, but leaves him in a very escapable situation. So this is very much an on-point setting of the standard for Bond villains. But where do we think he kind of measures up, I guess, in terms of who was to follow? Um, I think for me, I think it did really set it up really well. I mean, he is really sinister. I don't think he's the scariest of all the Bond villains, but he's certainly up there. I think he is, he is, and certainly the performance that was put in as well, it is really puts you on edge. It's not a, a nice room. You can tell it's a really awkward atmosphere. It's, it's kind of one of those things where it's, you don't have to be aggressive or shouting to be frightening. It's very much, he's very understated and very subtle, but it is really terrifying in how he, how he acts. Um, so I think it is a really effective Bond villain. Yeah, he is. And as I said before, I love the mystery of building him up. We hear his voice in that incredible Ken Adams set, which he built for basically two Bob 50. The grill in the top of this plain grey room with the light and the shafts coming into it and then just the tarantula in the cage on the table. And then obviously seeing him as he very pervily creeps into a Bond and Honey's room and sort of pulls the duvet to on them. Uh, I think the film does an incredible job of, of building the character up and the mystery of him and that sense of the strange and the unfamiliar. And then, yeah, when Joseph Wiseman appears, partly because of the very dodgy prosthetics, he looks very odd. But he, he, ha he is matching Connery in terms of the physical performance. There's a great stillness to him. There's real purpose when he moves. He's not relaxed in the same way. He's very rigid in terms of how he's standing and how he's moving. And he brings that sense of snobbery, which I think is really key in Bond villains, because Bond is a snob. He knows all the nice champagnes. He knows all the nice wines and all the good restaurants. And when the villain is also a real snob who uh, Bond can go head to head with, there's always a lovely frisson when you get those moments. In this one, for example, over, which is the best year of John Perignon. Yeah, when I was younger, I didn't appreciate Joseph Wiseman's portrayal of Dr. No. I thought it was too wooden. But now I've come to realise that is part, as you say, it's part of his character. He's supposed to move awkwardly. He's supposed to be delivering these lines in a slightly stilted way. But there is also a menacing undercurrent as well. So, uh, yeah, I've, as I've got older, I've appreciated the Dr. No character more and more. Uh, and again, it's that sense of megalomania of this larger-than-life crazed villain who's got this ridiculous mind that's also a radiation center. He's using radio beams to send rockets off course. So it's all huge in terms of its plan. Spectre's also just being a massive nuisance with this plan when it comes to it. I'm not sure which category of Spectre this whole thing comes under. They're not really extorting anyone. They're not really taking revenge on anyone. This is just general terrorism. But when you've got such an outlandish scheme going on, 
it's really clever the way that Wiseman underplays that role with real menace, just to, again, ground it all, not in realism, but in reality. And it just looks incredibly iconic. There are little visual touches he puts in there, like the bubbling pool and that sort of slowly descending gantry. I'm no expert on nuclear fission. I don't think you need a descending gantry into a boiling nuclear pool, but just having it there just gives it that little visual impact. And those elements that Adam was just brilliant at working with on a, on a small budget and putting into scenes so that they really live long in your memory. That the gantry is there for the fuel elements. And Chang, how on earth did he get away with being in Chang's suit? And he didn't, the scene where he's standing behind them and then the people next to Dr. No say, well, Dr. No asks, where's Chang? And they say, oh, he's, he's there, he's behind you. Well, how do they know it's Chang? Well, as we know from You Only Live Twice, it doesn't take very much to transform Sean Connery to make him look Asian. So clearly just that big boiler suit did the job. Yeah, and we get that, that panther walk to the gantry as well. That gives it away. <laughs> the thing I love about Sean Connery and Israel going back to that movement is he's never in that much of a hurry, even when the rocket's just taken off and he's literally got seconds to stop it. He's still kind of strolling over. He's not like at a run. Or, you know, just doing a light jog over, just so he can get his bearings a bit more. He very much saunters across that very big set. Yeah, best it was a trot, I think. It was literally just, you know, there was no urgency there at all. He couldn't care less, but look of it if those missiles went off. And just looking at that casino scene at the start, where Bond is introduced, there's an awful lot of a French film called Bob Le Flambeur, uh, Bob the Gambler, which Melville directed, which culminates in an incredible casino scene where in the context of that film, uh, Bob the Gambler is also a thief and he's uh, in this casino which they're going to rob at a certain time. But he's decided because he's a gambler, he's going to play at the Chemin de Fer tables. Again, so it's exactly the same game that Bond is playing. Melville doesn't do that many setups. It's just a close up on the cards being turned over, a medium shot of the stacks of chips, a close-up of his eyes as he's reading the game, and a close-up of the watch as he's checking the time when he's got to leave to be at this heist. And uh, he keeps winning, and then the time gets away from him, and the film and the heist ends very badly. But just watching that casino scene again, and the way that, you know, we don't see Bond's face for a while, we just see the hands, we see the back of the shoulder, we see that medium shot of Sylvia Trench in profile looking up at him and down at the cards and trying to work him out, which, again heightens that sense of style and punchiness and absolute efficiency, but effectiveness in terms of how he's shooting each scene for maximum visual and iconic impact. So I agree. It's a very iconic moment that when we're first introduced to, uh, to Bond and it links a rather tenuous link with one of my favorite bits of uh, trivia uh, where Phil, Phil has his own segment where he's going to look at some trivia from the film. But my favourite one, because I'm a, an avid card player myself, and one of the bits of trivia was that this is the most amount of card games we've seen in any James Bond film. So I wondered if Phil and Adam, can you make a guess at what were the, the four card games and when did they happen in the film? Well, I can guess three off the top of my head. There's, uh, there's Chemin de Fer at the casino in the start. He's playing solitaire, I guess, while he's waiting for Professor Dent. There is Bridge. They play Bridge at the Strangways Club. I can't off the top of my head remember the fourth one. Yeah, those are the ones that I got, but apparently there is Texas Hold'em. Now, I went through the film quite extensively and I didn't see it. I just wondered if you or Phil had seen it. I certainly can't remember Texas Hold'em at any point. It may have been a bit of fake trivia than on the uh, IMDb website. 
Is he are lighter and quarrel playing cards at a point at which he visits them on the dock? Maybe just thinking about because Texas Hold'em is of course an American version of poker, and so it wouldn't make sense if Felix Lighter, who by the way is the most useless CIA agent I think known to man. This, these are American rockets that Spectre is bringing down. This is his beat. This is his country's money that's going up the spout. And he doesn't do anything throughout this entire film. He just sits there commenting on what Bond is doing. But it is quite nice that we get to see Felix Lighter for the first time. But I don't think they use the actor again, I don't believe. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's the reason that the character doesn't get much airtime, isn't it? I think that they were worried that Jack Lord was going to steal the scenes. Hold it. Gently, bud, gently. Let's not get excited. Next segment we have uh, is the uh, link to the books. So uh, how accurate is the portrayal of Dr. No in terms of the original source material? So this is going to be an interesting segment in each week in that the answer will either be very faithful or not in the least bit faithful. And this is one of those which is, in fact, pretty paper. We've talked a little bit about various things in terms of Honey Rider is a much more edgy and resourceful character than she's perhaps given time to be um, on screen. And part of that is because the film bulks out a lot of that first half uh, in terms of him investigating what's going on in Kingston, Jamaica. There's no Professor Dent in the novel. He gets to the island and to Honey and to Dr. No himself very, very quickly. Uh, in the novel, she emerges from the sea naked, which, of course, the film changes for, as you can appreciate, very obvious reasons. Uh, the other major things are there is a link here to Live and Let Die. Bond actually meets both Strangways and Quarrel in the novel Live and Let Die, which is the second in the series. And so he has a prior relationship with both of them, which means Strangway's disappearance has more meaning to him. And, of course, Quarrel's um, demise is a much more bitter note for him. Uh, of course, when we get to live and let die the film, they get around this by introducing a quarrel junior. Uh, and the character of Dr. No, he's very different in this. He's much more sadistic in the novel. He has a real, he's very twisted and mental. And he puts Bond through this kind of assault course of torture in order to test uh, his physical fortitude. And the film keeps a lot of this, but just reframes it as his escape attempt. But in the novel, um, him being electrocuted in the cell, him being scolded on the red hot metal he has to crawl through, him being half drowned, is all part of this uh, running man style assault course, as is a battle with a giant squid, which again, looking at the uh, relatively minimal budget of the film, you can understand why that was taken out. Also, the death of Dr. No, very different in the novel. Uh, in the film, it's a bauxite mine. In the novel, uh, it's a bird guano um, processing facility and Dr. No is actually uh, buried under a mountain of said guano. So a much uh, more embarrassing and ignoble, I guess, way to go. Uh, it's a killer centipede, which is sent to kill Bond in the novel, as opposed to a tarantula. And one of the interesting things actually to talk about very quickly in terms of the novel here is why start the film series with this one? Because of course, they don't have the rights to Casino Royale at this point. They can't start with that physically. But why do you then go to the sixth book? And I think there's a couple of reasons. I think part of it is what we've touched upon is that sense of getting glamour and escapism and exoticism, which comes from the Jamaican location where, of course, Fleming wrote the novels at uh, the GoldenEye retreat. And of course, you've got this sort of half Chinese villain, which again, the West didn't know that much about China at this point. It was still, I think, under the chairmanship of uh, Mao Zedong. 
and seen as this very mysterious alien culture, which we didn't know much about. And so there's that sense of, of the unknown and of mystery that just having that part Chinese villain brings to it. Yeah, it's interesting to see which elements they kept and which ones they removed, partly because of the the budget, I guess. But personally, I would have liked to see a, a naked Ursula Andress wrestle a giant octopus. Let's not get excited. Our next segment is all about cars. So, uh, Phil, you are our resident expert. So uh, what did we uh, notice about the, the cars in this film? Well, it's quite interesting, really, to look at the um, the whole backdrop of the film, really, in terms of the car scene. I mean, when you actually start in Jamaica, you've got quite a, an interesting mix of different industry cars and things like that. So you've got a lot of American influence with the, you know, the big sort of 50s and 60s cars, things like the Chryslers and the Chevrolets, lots of the big Fenders and the Fins. But it's also interesting that they're mixed in with a lot of European cars. You see a lot of Volkswagen Beetles. You see a lot of Renault Ami 8s. You see, um, you know, a lot of different cars that you wouldn't normally anticipate seeing. And it's again, it's at a time when you've got to remember that although car ownership is still starting, should I say, to become um, more mass market, it's still really only to the preserve of, you know, the middle classes. It's still really only, uh, even in Britain, you know, it's not everybody is able to afford a car at this point. You're probably looking towards the end of the 60s when people are able to actually start to afford cars on a, mass, a much bigger mass scale. So it is, it is understandable that, you know, perhaps Bond wouldn't really rely on a car for the, the duration of the film. And certainly based, as Adam mentioned, based on the budget of just a million dollars, they weren't in a position to get into the Q branch side of things. They're giving him an all singing, all dancing, you know, gadgets here, there and everywhere. So it's quite, quite unique to see the fact that it's, it's a lot more understated and, you know, that it's quite subtle. The main car that we really see that Bond actually drives is the 1962 Sunbeam Alpine in blue. Now, this was, interestingly, this wasn't owned by the studio and they didn't buy it because, simply because they didn't have the money to be able to buy it from the manufacturer. So they went to a local Jamaican man who owned one and said, can we borrow your Sunbeam? And he said, yeah, fine, if you want to. So basically, they, they loaned a Sunbeam Alpine for that part of the film. Now, just a few stats about the car itself. Obviously, we've gotten used to things like Aston Martins, Jaguars, Lotuses, BMWs, you know, these high-powered performance cars as Bond's, you know, raison d'etre in terms of his car ownership. The Sunbeam Alpine was based loosely on the Hillman Husky estate. So it had the floor pan from an estate car and most of the running gear and it had the grand total of 80 brake horsepower from a 1.6 litre engine. So we're not talking about high performance here. So it's probably understandable that during the chase sequence between the hearse and Sunbeam, that we're basically seeing a LaSalle hearse from the 1930s keep up with a sports car. It's, it's quite embarrassing, really, when you look at it from modern standards. But it's quite an interesting chase in itself because this is one of the first sequences where it's actually filmed from the perspective of the driver's eye view almost. So it's quite interesting that they've used that technique. Obviously, a lot of it was filmed in the studio with Sean Connery. And again, a slight blip in the film is the fact that in one scene, you can see the stunt driver going around the corner and then it cuts back to Sean Connery with a much thinner hairdo trying to make it look like he's been driving the whole sequence. So it, there are elements that are a bit problematic, 
Now, again, this was kind of a bit far removed from the original narrative because in the book, Bond is actually given a Hillman Minx as his company car. Um, but perhaps the most exciting vehicle of the whole lot is the tank. So I know a lot of people are, are really either terrified or excited by the Dragon tank. Now, in the original book, it was based on a tractor that was used in the swamps. So obviously in the books with the bird sanctuary, the vehicle is an old tractor that, that's given a lot of armour and can drive through, you know, heavy swampland and heavy ground. And they did try to keep it consistent with that in the film. So it is still based loosely on kind of a mix of a tractor and army Land Rover and army Jeep. So there's kind of, it's kind of a hodgepodge of all three. But in terms of the armaments, it's still got the flamethrowers you'd find in the book. And when they were in the pre-production, they did actually go to Florida and tested out vehicles in the Florida swamplands to see how they would react in that sort of condition. So they did actually do testing beforehand to see how it would all work out. And that was in sort of, that was, and they based it loosely on the marsh buggies that they saw in the Florida swamplands. So that was where the, the inspiration came from. I, I'm neither terrified nor excited by the dragon tank, to be honest. Me and Adam had the ple pleasure of watching you in Greece in a school performance, Phil. And if you remember, the Grease Lightning on that day was a kind of a cardboard cutout with some fake wheels. And I'd say that that's the equivalent of what we see in Doctor Now. That was my homage to the, uh, to the dragon tank in Greece. That was the same, the same level of engineering, let's say. I always found the, the reach of the flamethrower seems a bit... I don't know whether it's the angles of the camera, but it seems a bit strange that they're able to get Quarrel and not Bond, who, who at one point is directly behind him, and then when Quarrel dies, is quite a way back. Quarrel does have a bit where he moves to another, uh, another slightly further forward bush. But yeah, you are right. There is a moment when it finally gets him, and suddenly you're like, oh, hang on, I didn't know you could shoot it that far. Also, there's a quick turnaround between Quarrel having a superstitious mindset of thinking it's a real dragon. And then a few seconds later, Bond is telling him to shoot for the headline. Yeah, that, that, that uh, turnaround really does um, last about the length of time it takes Quarrel to realise, Oh, it's a car! Okay, so our next segment is called That's Not Okay Anymore, which hopefully I'll have created a jingle for. So, uh, That's Not Okay Anymore is uh, a section where we're going to look at the perhaps the non-PC areas of the film, things that would have that were acceptable in 1962 that uh, perhaps they wouldn't get away with nowadays. Uh, so I thought I just wanted to uh, mention a few things to you, get your ideas, Adam and Phil, about these ones. Uh, so uh, I thought, well, pretty much the whole character of Quarrel seems, <laughs> seems not particularly PC. Now, and particularly Bond's attitude towards Quarrel. I know he's supposed to be a sidekick. He's supposed to be helping Bond along the journey. But when they get onto the island and Bond's very brusque tone. Well, I was about to say, with, with his shoes as well, when, when they've just been shot at, and obviously Quarrel's in, in a lot of shock, and he basically says, get my shoes. And he just literally has to pick him up and follow him along. As just, what, I, I think it's sort of that grumpy element that Sean Connery brings to it as well, where it's sort of, 
he does seem to treat everyone around him quite badly. It's it's not just Quarrel. I think it's most of the people he interacts with on the island. Uh, he's sort of quite short with them, let's say. That is a very good point, Phil. I mean, Bond is a little bit of a dickhead, and everyone, you know, does register the fact that he's being a dickhead. The scene after the car chase when um, the hearse has gone down the hill, and goes, I think they're on their way to a funeral. The guy who's the crane operator next to him gives him such a look as to be like, wow, too soon? They've all died. What are you saying? And then pretty much at the dinner we've got to know, every single Connery line is greeted with a very icy stare from Dr. No, because all he does is insult him. He is just nailing him time after time after time about his background, about his hands, about his taste in champagne, needling him about the lot. But you are right in terms of Coral, the fetch my shoes line is no. I mean, that is just ridiculous. Um, I guess in terms of the way they've written the character, Bond is perhaps getting a little fed up of his superstition and, you know, just wanting them to get on with the job in general. Um, but yeah, still the idea of just this white British tourist coming to Kingston, Jamaica, where he is, of course, a local fisherman and being very patronising about their superstitions and culture. Yeah, you're not getting away with that now. Sorry, mate. Yeah, I think and the fact that he, Coral, has the superstition yeah, like an agent who is still working in tandem with British intelligence, also still thinking that there is a real dragon on the island. Yeah, I'm not buying it. And then the the second thing for the uh, that's not okay anymore was uh, perhaps the conversation that we get that you mentioned between Bond and Dr. No, where Bond uh, picked out a particular line where he says, with your disrespect for human life, you must be working for the East. Now, I don't know how well that went down with Asian audiences. Yeah, it's a line that when you say it certainly doesn't sound very good. But I guess in the context of Chairman Mao's dictatorship, perhaps we can forgive it? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think we can forgive most of these things. Uh, it's just the, it's, that's not okay anymore. I mean, you certainly wouldn't say it now, of course. Yeah, and I think uh, linking with that in terms of uh, racial stereotypes, well, we've mentioned Dr. No is supposed to be of mixed heritage, but we get a white man playing him. Of course, similar things happen in the, in future Bond films. What do we think to that? The fact that they they do seem to play up the fact that he's a Chinese character, uh, but he's not actually Chinese, the person who's playing him. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we've obviously praised Joseph Weissman a lot for how he's played that character. You know, you could do without the prosthetics, of course, and then I think you would just get a very good, you know, mixed heritage um, part Asian actor to, of course, do the role. I don't think they ever really considered anyone... Chinese or even part Chinese for the part at all. Um, it was Noel Coward, who of course is about as English as they get. Christopher Lee, who I guess at that point had played Fu Manchu himself a lot in uh, some low budget films. So at least he had a bit of experience uh, with Chinese prosthetics and of uh, putting on the role. Um, at least he's not as bad as Mickey Rooney's uh, Japanese in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which I think was about the same year in the early 60s. Uh, if you want to see a white uh, Asian character, which is really not okay anymore, I'd thoroughly recommend just a quick look at what Mickey Rooney gets up to in Breakfast at Tiffany's. So at least we're not in that territory. But yeah, there's no way that I think Joseph Wiseman was Canadian uh, with no Asian or Chinese heritage at all. There's no way he's playing that role today. Yeah, so we've covered race. And actually one final thing in terms of gender, I picked out another quote from Bond here. Uh, when he's, uh, as you mentioned, he's having a quickie with the, the secretary. And, uh, they're talk discussing their food options for the night. 
and uh, Bond says, I don't want you getting dishpan hens. <laughs> it's just I, the way that Connery delivers that line was incredible. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that from the film. It was just sort of, it's just so shocking as well. It's like, did he really say that? Really? I think we'll just have to sort of forgive it as it, as it was sort of acceptable at the time, but not anymore. Yeah, I guess he needed an excuse, didn't he, to call the, uh, the taxi to get her away. Yeah, we can put it down to his uh, commitment to uh, the job and to getting her arrested at that point, I guess, to, uh, to let him off. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. That's putting it mildly, 007. Okay, so our next segment is Top Trivia, which, uh, Phil, I believe you're going to cover. That's okay, yes, and um, thank you very much. So I was going to do this actually as a top 10, but we've mentioned a couple of the things already. So I'll just run through a couple of little interesting sort of kind of fun facts, really, more than anything about the elements of the film. So one point that's quite interesting, really, um, all the sets and furniture are actually made slightly smaller for the cast. And that was to make Connery's character of Bond look bigger. So it kind of made him look more imposing and more sort of to give him more weighted performance. Slightly interestingly, the, the art director who created the Dragon Tank never actually got credited for it in the final film credits. So Cubby Broccoli, to compensate him, bought him a gold pen. And that was literally his compensation for building an entire tank, unusually. Again, a few other points. So Doctor No was actually picked as the inaugural film as it was the most straightforward plot to film. So obviously... That's based on the source material. So although Casino Royale is the first book, as we've kind of touched on before as well, Sir Sean Connery was quite deadly afraid of spiders as well. So in the sequence where the tarantula crawls across him, there is actually a very thin plate of glass that they used to separate the spider and Sean's arm, which you can see in one of the shots from the actual film. But when they viewed the footage, they weren't actually that satisfied with it. So they actually got stuntman Bob Simmons to do it for real. And that was a real venomous tarantula that was crawling on his arm. And his, the stuntman actually described it as the most terrifying stunt he's ever done. Another bit of trivia that you might not know about, in the film, the production team created a replica of a, a stolen Francisco de Goya painting for Dr. No's lair, which is quite an interesting step. And it obviously tried to emphasise the character of devious nature um, obviously we do want to emphasize this wasn't the actual painting that got stolen it was just a replica the later painting was actually recovered in 1965 so that did end up getting recovered in the end as we've mentioned before as well obviously we did briefly mention about sean connery being a lot of the time people um, assumed that he was wearing a lot of toupees and a lot of hair pieces in Dr. No and from films on. It was actually the case that he still had his own hair at that time, but it was thinning quite significantly. So although people often say that it was sort of the toupees were in, in vogue at that time, it wasn't until sort of Thunderball that, that was, they were having to use, you know, sort of more, more extensive hair pieces. And in, the, in Dr. No, they only use sort of slight hair pieces just to accentuate what hair he had. In the actual production side of things, obviously, as Adams mentioned, Morris Binder designed the iconic gun barrel. Uh, but he had to do it at the last minute because they were, they were struggling to work out the opening sequences. And he actually achieved the um, sequence by pointing a pinhole camera through the, a real gun barrel and then filming it from that angle. So that, that's how you get the effect of the gun barrel, is literally through a real one. And as we've also mentioned before, it wasn't actually Sean Connery who did the walk onto set. Again, that was Bob Simmons, and uh, Sean Connery wouldn't actually do the walk onto set until Thunderball, so that was not until a few films later. And I believe that's most... I mean, there's a couple more, but 
that's most of the trivia facts I had. Yeah, that sounds good. Did you want to say anything about those, Ed? Yeah, those are great facts. I didn't know a few of those. The only bit of um, trivia I have, which I do really like, is uh, Terence Young, the director, again. Nobody really knows any of the movies he directed outside of Bond, but it does turn out he previously worked with Albert R. Broccoli for Warwick Films, which was Broccoli's previous production company, and Young had directed a few films for that company, which is how Broccoli knew him. The fourth of which was titled No Time to Die. So if you're wondering where the latest Bond film title comes from, it's from Terence Young's fourth film for Albert R. Broccoli. Good stuff. So uh, I think I covered my top trivia already with the the cards. So do actually, someone can let us know, are they actually playing Texas Hold'em in the film? No prizes, but uh, do let us know if it's happening. Okay, so for our final segment, we're going to have our quiz, which we're going to have for the end of each of our episodes. So Quizmaster Adam, would you like to... Uh, Take it away. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! I will, so we're going to use this bit to take it in turns to send the other two a James Bond-themed quiz. Uh, for this first one, um, we're going to Celebrity Mastermind, where the ex-Premier League footballer Darren Bent recently picked James Bond as his specialist subject and got only one correct. So this quiz is all about seeing whether Martin and Phil can do better than Darren Bent. You'll have an advantage, you'll have multiple choice. But there are 12 questions here, let's see if you can get more than one. It's question number one, and this should be pretty gettable. Who directed the first two Bond films, Doctor No and From Russia With Love, he later returned to direct Thunderball? Is it Terence Young, Guy Hamilton, or Lewis Gilbert? Uh, Terence Young? Yeah, I've got the same. Yeah, that was Terence Young, we've mentioned him enough, you should be getting that one. Okay, great. Question number two. Once I've clicked through the BBC's website, in Goldfinger, several prominent American crime families are involved in a plan called Operation Grand Slam. Their objective is to rob which building complex? Is it the Pentagon, Fort Anderson, or Fort Knox? Fort Knox. Fort Knox. Yeah, Fort Knox, very easy one. I don't think you really needed all the options for that. Question three, when Bond visits the offices of the industrial mogul Mr. Asato and You Only Live Twice, he uses the name Fisher and claims to represent a British chemicals company. What's the name of the company? Empire Chemicals, Global Chemicals, or Panorama Chemicals? Empire Chemicals? I went global. The answer is Empire. It's Empire Chemicals. So, Phil, you know, one ahead. Next question. In the world is not enough. Bond has been assigned to protect Electric King, whose family's company, King Industries, is building an oil pipeline. M initially sends Bond to a country on the Caspian Sea. Which country? Is it Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, or Turkmenistan? Azerbaijan? No, that's what I went for. Yeah, that is right. It's Azerbaijan. Uh, probably the most prominent it's ever been in a film. Next question. In Skyfall, Bond jumps on the back of a rush hour district line tube train in pursuit of Raoul Silver. At which underground station does Bond board the train? Is it Blackfriars, Temple or Embankment? I put Blackfriars, but I think that could be wrong. I put that too. Blackfriars? I'm afraid it was Temple. Oh. So, Phil, you still want ahead? In the film on Her Majesty's Secret Service, the shots that kill Bond's new wife, Teresa, are fired by Blofeld's assistant. What's her name? Is it Fiona Volpe, Helga Brandt, or Irma Bunt? Irma Bunt? <laughs> yeah, I put that. Uh, which means, I believe, the baggy or swollen parts of a sail. Yes. 
Next question. Eon Productions, which makes the James Bond films, was founded by Albert R. Cubby Broccoli and a Canadian film producer who had worked on the kitchen sink dramas Look Back in Anger and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. What was his name? Harry Saltzman, Michael G. Wilson, or Kevin McClory? So that I put Harry Saltzman. Yeah, me too. It, it was Harry Saltzman, <laughs> yeah. At the end of Quantum of Solace, when M tells Bond, I need you back, what is Bond's reply? I have always been here. I never left or I'll be right there. I've always been here. I went for Never Left, but I had no idea. It is I Never Left. Oh, wow. so it's the level. Now. I Never Left, and then he leaves the locket in the snow, I believe. In Die Another Day, the villainous entrepreneur Gustav Graves designs a satellite with a silver skin, which he claims will inhale the sun's light and breathe it gently upon the Earth's surface. What is the name of the satellite? Is it A, Goldeneye, B, Suncatcher, or C, Icarus? Icarus. Icarus, yeah. It, it, it is Icarus, the boy who flew too close to the sun in ancient Greece. In License to Kill, Bond offers to pay a great deal of money if the CIA informant Pam Bouvier can get him a plane to help him in his pursuit of the drugs baron Franz Sanchez. Which fictional city does he want to fly to? San Monique, Isthmus City, or Zanzarim? Isthmus. I guessed Isthmus as well. <laughs> it was Isthmus City, yeah. Officially called the Republic of Isthmus. What's the title of the theme song to the 2006 Bond film Casino Royale, written by David Arnold and Chris Cornell and sung by Cornell? You know my number, you know my job, or you know my name? Uh, you know my name? Yep. Yep, you know my name. The late Chris Cornell, sadly. In Moonraker, which flower does Drax describe as the curse of a civilization because long-term exposure to it causes sterility? Is it valerian, orchid, or yellow toad flax. It all comes down to this one. Are we even? Yeah, I think we're even. Uh, you're we? even, got... Stevens. And this is a guess said, as well. I said, well sure, in the back of my mind, I'm sure you said it was the orchid. The yellow toad, whatever it was. And I've got a feeling Phil's one. Well, I can tell you the correct answer was orchid. So oh. Phil is it with that amazing orchid knowledge from Moonraker. So Phil, you take the first quiz you are our first quiz champion that's good but it was a, it was a worthy uh, challenge okay so i think uh, i think we've covered everything we needed to for uh, episode one uh, i haven't written an outro uh, so i guess uh, well we could phil you won the quiz so what would you like our outro music to be preferably something that links with the uh, the film that we've just reviewed i think we should uh, i think three blind mice would probably be the uh, the suitable uh, outro music for for this week's episode I think that's an excellent choice. My other one, I, was, I would have had Jump Up Jamaica, which I thought was incredible in the middle of the film. But I might have added that in post-edit. Hopefully you can enjoy that. And also enjoy Three Blind Mice. So until next time, we'll see you for episode two, where we'll watch From Russia With Love. Feel free if you want to, you can, uh, you can watch that film as well. Uh, before we uh, we talk about it on here. So uh, thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye from me. Bye from me, Adam. And bye from me, Philip. James Bond will return. Blind mice here and there, tree blind mice everywhere, searching all around for the cat, all over Kingston town, Peter Pat. They got the carving knife to cut the pussy cat's life. The push will get that knife for trifling a tree blind my soul demand.